Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. To the book of Genesis, chapter 11. Verse 27, it's where we're going to pick up reading today as we conclude this Foundations series. Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, we'll read down through chapter 12, verse 9 together. If you don't have a copy in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me. If you want to follow along there, you're welcome to do so. Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 27, reads, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah. And the daughter of Haran and the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram and his son and Lot and the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his son, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth from, together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But whenever they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and all the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord there, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. And this is God's word. You know, I don't know if you've seen a 3D movie recently. Um, I, I saw one with my family not too long ago, but I can remember the older 3D movies whenever they first began to come out in the theaters, and you had like the one blue lens and the one red lens and the glasses, right? Not quite as advanced as the technology they use these days in order to make the images on the screen come alive. But there's a difference between watching a 2D movie and a 3D movie. A 2D movie, the images are flat on the screen before you, whereas in a 3D movie, they, they look like they're coming 
right in your face, okay? And so whenever the, the, the monster leaps out from behind the tree or whatever it is, it looks like it's right there breathing, its nostrils snorting right there in your face, right? Because there's a difference between things that are two-dimensional. About the ancient world, we have a tendency to flatten it to a two-dimensional world. Right, that's just our tendency because we're not familiar with customs and culture and context. But the, the truth is that even the ancient world was a very three-dimensional world. It was a very three, 3D type of an environment. There were complex decisions to be made, nuances that were, uh, that were, that were lived out, influential context in which they lived. And one of the things that has helped make the ancient world perhaps three-dimensional for those of us who tend to flatten it to a two-dimensional world is archaeology. Now, archaeology has helped make the world that Abram lived in a three-dimensional world. In his commentary on the book of Genesis, Kent Hughes writes about Sir Leonard Woolley's excavation of an ancient Mesopotamian city known as Ur, in which Abram was raised. In the 1920s and 1930s, Woolley excavated that city. And as Kent Hughes writes about that excavation, I want you to hear what he has to say. He says this in his commentary. During the 13 years of excavations, the great newspapers of the world followed his progress in countless articles. Woolley's discovery of the royal cemetery of Ur with its large cache of gold objects and evidence of human sacrifice attracted travelers from around the world. Hugh says, having seen the traveling exhibitions of the treasures from the royal tombs of Ur at the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute, I can testify, Hughes, uh, Hughes writes, to Woolley's ability to make the past real. His scaled map of the city of Ur in the time of Abraham with its ziggurat topped with the temple of Nana, the moon god. The palace of Ur-Namu, the temples of Ningal and Inki, surrounded by the city's walls and harbors, his schematic drawings and photographs of the great death pit, with 73 bodies of servants arranged in sacrifice around Queen Pu'abi's gorgeously decorated corpse, all serve to make the past come alive. He says, but most of all, the artifacts themselves make Abram's context live. Puabi's incredible golden headdress and beaded cape, the gold and lapis lazuli headbands of her attendants, the gold beech leaf wreaths beaded with carnelian, the gold, silver, and ivory vessels, the great lyre with the golden bull's head portrays the ruler's hopes of a good life to come. Puabi's body and those of her unfortunate servants, as well as her gold and silver, all lay over 3,000 years in the death pits until unearthed by Sir Leonard. He says, these treasures of Ur tell us that Abram's social and religious context was as sophisticated and pagan and claustrophobic, in other words, really tightly wound as that of any Babylonian or Egyptian dynasty. He says, Ur was desolate and barren of knowledge of the true God. Ur's intrusive lunar religion dominated life from birth to the grave. And then he goes on to comment, during the ten generations from Noah through Shem to Abram, the whole family of the earth had played out its future and had nowhere to go. The culture of Babel, though dispersed, had triumphed. 
There is no foreseeable future other than darkness. And there was certainly no human power to invent a future. Mankind, he says, was hopelessly lost except for the distant promise to Shem that blessing would come through his line. See, Abram's world was not unlike our own church filled with fallen people and false gods that dominated life from the cradle to the grave. It is into this world in Genesis chapter 12 that God issues a call to Abram, which would not only change the trajectory of Abram's life, but would also carry forward the promise made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 to do away with evil once for all, with the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And it's in Abram's response to God's call in this very complex three-dimensional world in which he was born and lived, right, with its nuances and pressures, It's his response to this call that I want to focus on this morning as we consider what it means to walk by faith in our day. Because Abram's story is a story of faith. In fact, his faith is celebrated throughout the pages of the Bible. Not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New. For over and over again, even the New Testament authors remind us that the righteous shall live by what? Faith. By faith they live. Abram's faith has been likened over the course of the years to different developmental stages, right? His elementary school faith here in Genesis 12, right? His, his collegiate faith there in Genesis 15, okay? His master's degree, doctoral course in faith in Genesis 22 as he takes his son up the mountain, not knowing where, the God, where God was going to provide from to sacrifice his son. Right? So his faith develops over the course of years. But here early on in Abram's journey of faith, I think we see some key elements that stand out for us that teach us what a life of faith looks like, not only in his three-dimensional world, but in ours as well. And I believe the first one is this, is that if we're going to live a life of faith, you have to recognize that faith is not passive. Right? It's active. It, so you might say it this way, faith does stuff. Okay? It does stuff. And one of the things that it does is this, is it abandons earthly identity and security. It abandons that. In verse 1, God calls Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I want you to notice something. He works in an ascending order, but going down in size. He starts with his country, right? The general geographic location that Abram would have been known and been familiar with and comfortable in. And then he goes down to his tribe or his kindred, that larger extended family, all his aunts and uncles and cousins and second cousins and third cousins twice removed, right? His tribe, this larger group of folks that he had belonged to, down to his father's house, his nuclear family, those that he was closest with, those he was most comfortable around. 
So he's moving step by step. Leave this general geographic location. Leave your tribe. Leave even your father's household. Country, kindred, and family in the ancient world and even in the modern world were all sources of identity and security for a person. And God says to Abram, I want you to break ties with your pagan identity and your present security. I want you to cut ties with all of the moon god God and goddesses that you've worshipped in the past. Because there is one true God. And His voice is speaking to you now and calling you out of that reality. To set your security not upon your homeland. Set your security not upon your family of origin. But to set your security upon this God who will bring you to a land that He will show you. And He's not even going to tell you where you're going. Didn't even give you the, the address to put it in Google Maps, Abram. But you, you've got to go. And I'm going to tell you where to stop. John Calvin said it this way back in his day. He said, I, eyes closed and forbid you to inquire where I'm about to lead you until having renounced your country, you shall have given yourself wholly to me. That's what God was calling Abram to. Right? Renounce Everything that you've known to be true about who you are, your identity, and the places and positions that you have found your security, and give your all to me. Give it to me, Abram. Now, this is a radical idea, isn't it? It's a radical thought because it challenges the dominant ways of thinking, not only in Abram's time, but in ours as well. See, we long to be settled and secure, don't we? We all have this innate, 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 right? That time changed a couple of weeks ago, still catching up with me. This innate longing, this natural desire to be settled, to be secure, right? So as a result, we want to be in a place where we are familiar with an identity. We find our identity in those peoples and places. Everything around us tells us to hunker down, save as much as you can, save everything that you can. Hedge yourselves around with every kind of protection. Our natural desire craves more and more and more comforts. So our culture celebrates as a result, if you look around, it celebrates these great massive estates and homes. Okay, And so you can look and see all, you know, on, on HGTV and you can watch all the shows right, that turn these dumps into incredible places to live. Right, Our culture celebrates these incredible homes and it celebrates these dynastic families right, like the Kardashians. Not sure why, okay? But it celebrates, right, families that have a lineage and a legacy, and it celebrates places and, and even physical uh, buildings that have been constructed, all because they, they're embedded with this sense of identity and security. But God's Word always comes to us and calls us out of those things. It tells us, as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, not to set our hearts on things that are below, right? Not on earthly sources of identity, earthly sources of of security. But in Colossians 3, Paul writes, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 
Paul will say in the New Testament what God says to Abram in the Old. He says to Abram in the Old, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your family. Cut ties with your pagan past and present security. Paul says, don't fix your mind on the things that you can see on the earth, but what is unseen in heaven. Now what makes this even more astounding, okay, is how old Abram was at the time in which God called him. Some of you are like, "Uh uh-oh. In verse 4, we're told that Abram was 75 years old when he receives and answers the call to leave behind his country, kindred, and father's house. Now, you're like, well, they lived a long time back then, right? Abram died at the ripe old age of 175 years, we're told later on in Genesis, okay? And so you're thinking, Abram's somewhere in middle age, okay, at the time in which he receives this call based upon his life expectancy. But listen, I want you to hear something and think about something with me for a moment. Abram was still no spring chicken. Okay? He wasn't. It's not like he was a 20-something. Okay? With no attachments and responsibilities, living a carefree life, looking forward to a life of adventure in a one-bedroom loft somewhere. Okay? That's not the situation that Abram was in. Rather, Abram was 7 to 10 years beyond the modern age of retirement. Right, so think about your life, right? Say you want to retire at 65 or 67 and a half or whatever that's going to look like for you. Or for me, 89, okay? That's the age that I'm shooting for, 89, all right? So whatever your retirement age, you're projecting, right? Abram's beyond that. He's 75 years old whenever God calls him. To leave behind the things that he was familiar with and go to this place that he has not yet seen. You know, as I was thinking about that reality this week, it reminded me that faith does not have a retirement age. Now listen, I have been in ministry long enough for 25 years to have seen how this works and how this can operate in the life of a church and in the lives of individuals. Oftentimes in, their, in our younger age, we have this sense of passion and vibrancy and the willingness to take risks. But the older that we get, the older that we grow, the more risk averse we become. To take, to step out on faith and to go where God is calling. And I wonder sometimes, like where are the Caleb's in this generation? Right? Now, my son's name is Caleb, yes. But where are, like the Caleb's of the Old Testament? Who whenever Joshua leads the people into the land, we're fast forwarding here several centuries. When Joshua leads the people into the land... And it's still been, been, being occupied by these, these tribes of, of, of peoples who were in the land. And God had said, hey, drive them out. This is the land of promise. Drive them out. Do not make treaties with them. Don't settle down with them. Drive them out. Caleb, in his old age, right? I think he's like 80 years old. And he says, hey, give me the high places, Give me the hardest, most entrenched peoples because by faith, I'm going to go and drive them out. And so it makes, even as I think about being halfway to 90, one of my prayers would be for my own self 
is that as I age, that I would not become so risk averse that I silence God's call to step out on faith and to go the places that he's calling me, even if I'm not familiar and not comfortable with where he might be sending. Because faith abandons earthly identities and sources of security. Let me ask you this. What, how is it that you understand yourself? What is your identity rooted in? Where is it that you're finding security? If you want to walk by faith, the call of God in all of our lives is to sever ties with any earthly way of understanding ourselves and any earthly source of security. The second thing that I noticed in this text this week as I was thinking about walking by faith is this, is that if we're going to walk by faith, we must learn to worship our way through life. Worship your way through life. Listen, the life of faith, those of you who've walked it long enough, you know this, the life of faith is not a five-star, all-inclusive vacation, okay? Where you go and like you, you show up at the resort and when you, you go to check in and they're coming out, taking your luggage, bringing it to your room with you. They meet you with like the little bubbly, right, sparkling cider or a glass of wine or champagne, whatever your preference is, right? And they meet you there and they've got fans and they put little necklaces on you, all right? And they're bringing you in. They're showing you, hey, you can eat here for free and eat here for free and eat here for free and eat here for free. You can enjoy the beaches, right? You can enjoy the pools. You can go snorkeling all it's all included baby right you just enjoy it you just show up and if you want to just sit on the beach for an entire seven days and do nothing but have people bring you food and drink you can do that that's not the life of faith that's not the pilgrimage the journey of faith rather the journey of faith is less like a five-star vacation but more like a pilgrimage it's filled with horses and wagons Okay, this journey is. It's filled with rattlesnakes and mountain lions and bears. Right, having this not know where your next drink of water is going to come from, where you're going to find the next clean stream. And so you're filling up, right, every time you find something to drink. You're stockpiling every time you find something to eat. That's the journey of faith. It's a pilgrimage, not a vacation. And upon that pilgrimage, we're told over and over again in the Bible that our lives will be like a sojourning type of experience. You know what a sojourning experience is? It's whenever you're traveling through a place that is not your ultimate destination. It is not your ultimate home. And that's exactly what Abram experiences here in Genesis chapter 12. And as he sojourns through the land that God had promised to send him to, right? Eventually, he, he, he's not even going to settle there for long because he's going to end up going down into Egypt when the famine hits here in a couple of chapters. We're not going to get there, but he's going to go down there and he is not going to, right? He's going to eventually come back, but he's, it's, it's, and he settles there, but his, the rest of his, his, his family that God promised him is going to, they're going to end up back down in Egypt as well, right? So there's all this weird things going on between Israel and Egypt, right? The peoples of, that come from Abram's seed and the peoples of Egypt, right? Because they're constantly depending upon other powers around them. But Abram, as he journeys and, and sojourns, just scopes out the land, I want you to notice something. There's significance to the places that he stops on this pilgrimage that he's making. 
Because as he goes through the land, he stops in two places that were are identified here for us. The first one is Shechem, the second one is Bethel. And both of these places that Abram stops at were significant places in Canaanite worship. Okay, so in both locations, as Abram is passing through the land, first he stops at Shechem to, and stops at the Oak of Morah. Now, we're told that Abram goes to this oak tree, right? Because in Morah, the name of it means teacher or oracle giver. Now, the, this tree was the place where the Canaanites would come and they would assemble and they would bring together all of their kind of quote-unquote prophets and soothsayers and they rustled the leaves and read, the, read, the, read the, 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 the heavens and all those kinds of things and gave oracles to the people right, to instruct them on what was to come. And so there, this was a, a, a source or a very heart of, some, of, of Canaanite idolatry. So in the very heart of the land, Shechem was also geographically right in the center of this land that God had promised to give Abram. And this place that he was going to make his home and the home for his family. And so right in the heart of the land, Abram finds exactly what he left behind. Idolatry. It just looks a little different. He finds the worship of false gods right there in the land that God was sending him to. So he found it was very familiar to his home. And yet it was there in Shechem that God appears to him. See, before that, God, we, we're not told that God had appeared to him back in Ur of the Chaldeans. He just spoke to him. But now there's a theophany, right? the appearance of God. He shows up. And he speaks to Abram and he says, To your offspring, I will give this land. It's the shortest of all the promises that he makes. But it's noteworthy because as Abram had followed his unseen God to an unknown destination, he was granted with a vision of the Lord. See, pilgrims who leave and follow God see more and more and more of him. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 13, for to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. And what you see as Abram goes to Shechem, this place of Canaanite worship and prophecy and soothsaying, that his response to that promise that God makes to give the land to Abram's offspring is to do what? He builds something there. But he doesn't build a city, doesn't build a tower to make a name for himself. What does he build? He builds an altar. And on that altar, I think we're led to believe that he offers a sacrifice and he worships God. Right? It's a beautiful thing to consider. The only architecture left from Abram's journey through the land is not a tower and it's not a city. It's an altar. He goes to the heart of Canaanite worship and he establishes the worship of Yahweh, of the one true God. As he worships his way through this sojourn. Next, Abram stops in Bethel. And Bethel was about 21 miles to the south of Shechem. Midway between, and it's midway between Bethel and I is where he sets up his tents. And as he sets up his tents, he moves around the hill country there. And again, he builds an altar to the Lord and calls upon God's name. Now, Bethel, like Shechem, was home to an important Canaanite sanctuary to the god El, who was head of their pantheon. 
All right. So in, in Shechem, you had the Oak of Morah where they got all these prophecies and divinations and soothsayers. Here in Bethel was the god El, the head of the Canaanite pantheon of gods. But just as in Shechem, Abram ignores the worship of the Canaanites and establishes the worship of Yahweh in the land. He proclaims his faith, calls on the name of the Lord. That's what it means to do when, he, when the Bible says he called on the name of the Lord. A part of that is proclaiming the name of God to the inhabitants of the land. Now, Abram's entourage was quite big because he had picked up some folks in Haran. Okay? Now, when we read back in Genesis chapter 12, in verse 5, we read that And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Okay? Now, when we read that, the people that he acquired, our most natural tendency is to thank the slaves. They picked up some slaves to be their servants whenever they went down into the land. But I don't think that's what's going on here. One commentator and, and, and Bible interpreter uh, said it this way. He says, these were not slaves as we might naturally suppose, but rather, he says, they were the souls they had won in Haran. Arguing, he argues, this is the translation is better exegetically and more in line with how the rabbis actually interpreted what was going on there. So Abram and Haran had been winning people to Yah worship the worship of Yahweh, and they said, well, we're going to go with you on this journey. And they get down to the, to, to the hill country there outside of Bethel. And so he's got a large entourage with him that, that has followed him on this pilgrimage. And so as he's proclaiming and calling upon God's name, this is a public display as he's preaching, essentially. That's the way Luther translated it, Martin Luther. He said he's preaching there in the hill country and inviting people to believe upon Yahweh. So these locals, they knew exactly what was happening as he proclaimed God's great attributes and mighty works. Now I want you to think about how beautiful this is. This life of faith that he lived. The Lord had promised to make Abram's name great. And Abram had responded by what? Making God's name great. Proclaiming God's name. Calling on God's name. How far had Abram come from Babel? The tower builders who wanted to make a name for themselves. God promises Abram a name. And Abram in response says, God, I'm going to make your name great. Make your name famous among the peoples. So by, taking, by, by building these altars in these key places, Abram's taking possession of the land and worshiping his way through his sojourn. Right, going to the very heart of these places that have been filled with the worship of false gods and establishing the worship of the true God. And listen, church, you and I's pilgrimage, again, it's not a five-star, all-inclusive vacation, but a pilgrimage of faith through this life. And the only way that you have hope of surviving in that pilgrimage is worship. Is setting at the very center of your life the name of God, the greatness of God, the attributes of God, the character of God, the acts of God as revealed on the pages of Scripture, but also as seen through the pages of history and in the pages of your life. Is worship. Because whenever the rattlesnake bites 
And whenever the bear growls and the mountain lion threatens, the response of a, of, of a heart that is walking this pilgrimage of faith is not to fall back in fear, but to press forward in worship, proclaiming God's name and His greatness. The third thing that I want us to see here in the text is that if we're going to live a life of faith and walk by faith, we must not only, not only worship our way through life, and not only abandon earthly identities and securities, but finally, we must look forward to the promise. Right? Because faith is always forward-looking. It's always believing something that lies out there on the horizon. And so whenever God calls Abram, He calls him not only with a call to leave behind his kindred and leave behind his country and leave behind his family, but He does so as well with a promise. And as we read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, particularly verses 2 and 3, you're going to see that God promises to bless Abram five, five times. That word blessing shows up five separate times in two verses. And somebody told me a long time ago, whenever you see something repeated that frequently in that short a span, it's probably because the author is trying to emphasize something. All right? It's a pretty good bet. And God is promising to bless Abram. Notice the blessings that he, seven, it's really a sevenfold blessing that shows up in the text. First, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, number two. I will make your name great, number three. You will be a blessing, number four. I will bless those who bless you, number five. Whoever curses you, I will curse, number six. And climactically in the favored seventh position, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That this blessing is not just for you, Abram. It's going to come through you, but it's going to go to all peoples of the earth. And the seven expressions of blessing, as one commentator observed, he said it's a formulated to set before us a form of blessing that was perfect in every respect. That number of perfection. It's a perfect blessing. Now Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is very specific about Abram's relationship to the promised land. It says this, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he who was looking forward to the city that had foundations, whose designer and builder was God. That when Abram goes forth, he goes forth on the basis of God's promise, in faith, that he's going to see what God would provide. Now, the reality is that Abram didn't see all of this. Abram dies before he sees the fulfillment of all these promises that God makes to him. I'm not going to leave you with that this morning. That would just be disheartening. <laughs> but that's the truth. Abram never fully sees the full realization right, of his descendants becoming as numerous as the stars in the sky and as numerous as the sand on the seashore as God tells him they would be in Genesis chapter 15. Abram dies before he ever sees how 
from him would come a blessing to bless all the nations of the earth. Abram dies before he ever fully recognizes or sees how God would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him as God brings subjection to the Canaanites throughout the land, drives them out. And every time somebody tries to raise up throughout human history to destroy God's people, God flexes on their behalf. Abram dies before he ever fully sees how great would be the name that God would give him. He dies before he sees all of that. And yet, in faith, he continues to cling to the promise. In spite of, in spite of Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, uh, uh, yes, verse 30. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. So here's Abram, 75 years old, past retirement age, no children. I will make you a nation. I will establish your legacy and reputation and name. And Abram believes the promise. And that is what is credited to him, church, as righteousness. That when God says, I will, which if you notice in all the blessings that he pronounces, it's all I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Abram believes God will. And he acts on the basis of that belief. It's not a passive thing. It's an active thing. It does stuff. And so Abram abandons his homeland. He abandons his identity and security found in his pagan past and present forms of security. He worships his way through his, the, the sojourn in the land as he moves toward what God has promised. And he continues to look forward to it even though he never fully lays eyes on it. I want you to know something as we close today. The call of Abram is not unlike another call in the Bible. See, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And in Mark 8, 35, Jesus says, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, he will save it. See, the very thing that God says to Abram in Ur of the Chaldeans, Jesus says to anyone who would be his follower. If you try to hold on to your life, if you try to manufacture security for yourself, you're going to be the most insecure person on the face of the earth. You're going to lose your life. If there's anything in your heart that comes above or before me, including your nuclear family, then you're not ready to follow me. See, the gospel calls us to rest all of our faith, all of our hope on Jesus and Jesus alone, nothing else. So when he calls us, listen, he doesn't guarantee us 
the future or tell us that it, what it's going to be like. He does promise that he will take us to be with him forever. He will forgive us of our sins. He will grant us peace in the midst of all of our afflictions in this life. But he doesn't promise a life of ease on earth. And if you're looking for that kind of promise before turning to Christ, you never will. Because he doesn't make that kind of promise. But he calls you to trust in his word. The bare word of God. That indeed he will forgive your sins. He will remove your guilt and your shame. If you would put your feet on the path of believing his promise. And we, looking back, have the benefit of looking back and seeing how indeed God did bless all the nations of the earth through Abram. And it came through one man, Jesus Christ. Are you willing to abandon earthly identity, earthly security, worship through this pilgrimage, all the while clinging to the promise of an eternal home with God? That is walking by faith. Let's pray together. We come today, Father, thanking you for the way that we're able to see in the life of Abram what it looks like to walk by faith, to live by faith, to act in faith, to respond to your call, to believe your promise. Father, I pray in my life that as I age, in the lives of my brothers and sisters, I pray that we would not grow calcified or hardened or complacent. But I pray that we would be willing to answer your call, no matter our age. And Father, I pray that we would, in the midst of our pilgrimage, that our eyes would ever be lifted heavenward toward you in worship and proclaiming your name, remembering your great works and mighty deeds. And Father, I pray like Abram that we would be looking for a city whose builder and architect is you. And that we would cling to your promises in this life. I pray for those in this room this morning. I pray that if they've never abandoned their earthly identity and earthly security to place their faith and confidence in Jesus, I pray they would. I pray they hear the voice of Jesus this morning saying, give up your life to find it. Embrace me as your highest loyalty. Place me in the center of your life. Give up on running and ruling your own life. And by faith, believe what I have for you is better. I pray they would hear the voice of Christ issuing that invitation to them this morning. And I pray by your grace, Father, you would give them eyes to see it, ears to hear it, and the heart and faith to respond to your grace.
Father, as we respond and worship this morning to your word, I pray you'd meet us where we are. Strengthen our faith and help us to walk in it as we leave this room today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church. But tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.